You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on July 10th, 2020. Let's have a listen. Okay. Hello, everyone. Well, after a one-week uh, gap for the holiday, back again for science and technology Q&A for kids and others. And um, so I think we had a few questions left over from last time. Uh, let's see. So there's a question from Brian here. How does one imagine a color that one has never seen before? That is an interesting question, always discussed by uh, philosophers and so on. How do you imagine something that you haven't seen? I think the only way that one imagines things one hasn't seen is by fitting them into a context of things one has seen. So, you know, we get a little bit more of an understanding of how things like brains work from what's gone on with artificial neural nets in AI, artificial intelligence systems. So in the last probably um, nearly 10 years now, there's been a lot of progress in making uh, computer systems that learn from examples, that where you give it a bunch of pictures of cats, a bunch of pictures of dogs, and you tell it in each case, this is a cat, this is a dog, um, and then you show it a new picture, and it has learnt to uh, distinguish a cat from a dog. And so the question, uh, and, and if you look, so the question is, and, and the way it learns is it's tweaking a bunch of numbers, millions of numbers that represent how it's going to uh, weight the treatment, how it's going to weight and combine and so on, all the different uh, pixel values that it sees in the image. But so the question is, does it learn the concept of a cat or the concept of a dog? Or is it just saying with this particular way of combining pixels, I can deduce, is it a cat or a dog? It's not so obvious that it learns the, the concept, but that would be, I think, the best place to look to understand, is there a way to learn about some new color that you have never seen that, um, uh, in other words, you, you can, you say, this new color that I can't see because maybe I'm colorblind or maybe it's outside the visible range of colors. Um, how does that, what is it like? Can I imagine what it's like? Well, can I imagine it? Well, I think the way you have to imagine it is by fitting it into a context of other things that you know about. Let me give an analogy. Let's say the word, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, the word splubble, okay? So I just made that word up. I don't know, you know, splobble on its own, we don't know what the word squabble, spubble, what did I even say? Squabble, no, that's a real word. Spobble means. But as soon as we start hearing spobble in a sentence, like I took my pet, pet spobble for a walk today, then as soon as I start hearing some context, so if I say I took my pet spobble for a walk today, you kind of get the idea, well, maybe a spobble is a type of animal. Um, if you say, and then you say, and my pet spobble, you know, ate uh, a lot of fish today, 
That's one thing. If you say my pet Spobble ate a hundred pounds of, of food today, you get the idea it's a pretty big animal, whatever it is. So, so again, with, with all this sort of context, even though you've never seen a Spobble, by the time you've heard enough about it, when somebody asks you a question about it, or you, you will build up some mental model of what a Spobble might be. Um, and I think that's the way that you would, uh, you know, this original question of how do you, how do you, see, how do you imagine a color that you've never seen? I think that's that that's the sort of operational definition of that. Is can you make deductions about this color? Can you reason in terms of this color? Um, and I think the answer to that is is to build it up in terms of in terms of context. Now let me give you a practical application of this that that um, I've been curious about a long time. So so we humans see uh, light, that's what our eyes detect, but light is just a type of electromagnetic radiation that ranges all the way from radio waves down to X-rays and gamma rays and things like that. Right outside, so, so in a rainbow, for example, you're seeing the different frequencies uh, of, of light distinguished from, from red to blue, but actually uh, there are more electromagnetic frequencies beyond the range that our eyes see. Beyond red, there's infrared, beyond blue, there's ultraviolet. Well, we can make cameras that can see in the infrared and in the ultraviolet. In fact, your average cell phone camera can see a little ways into the infrared and a little ways into the ultraviolet. And it has to have a special filter to stop it showing you pieces of image that are sensitive to infrared and ultraviolet because then you'd look at the image and you'd say, that's nothing like what I see with my eyes because the camera has detected uh, electromagnetic waves that are one, not ones that we can see. When you're going into the infrared, things that uh, uh, infrared light, uh, infrared uh, radiation, it's uh, when a, a hot object will produce lots of infrared. Um, and uh, a colder object will produce less infrared. So for example, if you had an infrared image of me, you'd see you know, my skin temperature is, uh, well, I happen to be a very much in, in Fahrenheit, a very 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit kind of person. So you'd see, uh, actually the peripheral skin is not, not always the core temperature, but, but you'd see a temperature around 98 degrees Fahrenheit, but then like my glasses will be much colder and so if you looked at an image of me in, in infrared, you'd see this kind of bright area here, and then you'd see this much darker area for my glasses and so on. Um, okay, so a question is, if you, but, but if you look at, at an image um, in the infrared, there's a whole range of, 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 of frequencies of infrared, just like there's a whole range of frequencies of visible light that we identify as different kinds of colors. So the question is, in the infrared, where we don't have names for the quotes colors of infrared because our eyes don't see them, but we can somehow, we could try to represent infrared light in terms of some kind of generalized color. And the sort of question is how should that work? And if you were to have an infrared image, um, how, how could you color it in a way that people would understand? So for example, you know, I'm used to seeing, I don't know, a strawberry is red. It's red with respect to a visible light. In the infrared, I have no idea what, uh, what frequencies of, of infrared light, so to speak, a strawberry produces, but we might represent those in terms of another set of colors. So this comes up in practice. I don't know if you have a, a car, some, some cars like, um, I'm not even sure, if I, I don't think my current car does this, but um, some cars 
have, uh, they sometimes call it deer vision or something, uh, you know, for, for watching for, for deer. If you're, in, if you're in the US, it's deer running out on the road. If you're in Australia, it's kangaroos running out into the road. Um, but uh, for creatures running out of the road, because the road is cold, so it doesn't produce, it's very dark in terms of infrared, um, but a, a, you know, a, a warm-blooded animal is, is hot relative to the road, and so it will show up as a, as a sort of bright thing in, in infrared. So you can get these, these uh, displays that display in your windshield or something that uh, will show up with sort of bright dots if there's something sort of hot running into the road, which might correspond to an animal. So the question is, can you, so, so those displays usually just show white on a, on a black background, but the question is, could you show, given that you actually know more about kind of the, the, um, uh, the, 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 the type of infrared light, the frequency of infrared light, could you actually show more detail? And can you show, you know, a deer, which might be, I don't know, a brownish color invisible light, what is the representation of it in, in infrared light? And can you tell, you know, uh, a, a deer from, uh, what else is the same size? I don't know, from a kangaroo, for example. Obviously, you can tell from the shape, but could you tell it? And those two are fairly similar color too. Um, but fairly similar color in visible light. I don't know if they're a similar color in infrared light. Let's see. Um, there's a question here from Adam. Uh, why does blue light prevent you from sleeping? Um, well, so uh, the question is, when should you be asleep? When should you be awake? Your brain, your body has to get some idea of when's day, when's night. How's it gonna do that? Best way to do that is to use light levels. And, and so what will happen is you, we all have a so-called circadian rhythm. Our, our bodies are kind of tuned to work a bit like clocks. And roughly, you know, every, on a 24-hour cycle, for example, if you look at the, your body temperature, it will vary on a roughly 24-hour cycle. And if you look at a bunch of other attributes of your body, um, including whether you feel tired, they'll tend to vary on a 24-hour cycle. But the question is, when is the morning? When is the night? How does that 24-hour cycle get lined up? Now, you know, experiments have been done where people, volunteers, uh, live in caves for a long time where they have no exposure to outside light. And there's always a question of what is their natural circadian rhythm? Uh, do they naturally kind of uh, feel sleepy every 24 hours? Or does it, does it, um, is it different from that? And most people have a, a natural circadian rhythm that isn't exactly 24 hours. I think it's more often longer than shorter. Um, and so if you, if you kind of black everything out, you don't synchronize with the, with the day and night, um, you'll gradually have longer and longer and longer days, typically, for most people. Okay, but, but, but in any case, you've got to decide, given that you have the circadian rhythm that's roughly 24 hours long, which 24 hours corresponds to you know, when you should be awake, when it's daytime, and which corresponds to night. And so what's uh, fundamentally that works using light. But the really strange thing is that, uh, 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 partly it's light that comes into your eyes. There's some evidence that um, the uh, pituitary gland, which is right at the center of your brain, um, that uh, it has some uh, ability to sense light independent of light shining on your eyes. And that's kind of strange because it's like not a lot of light gets through your skull and things like that. 
um, and maybe this isn't correct, but there is some impression that there is a, a, a way in which you sense overall light level that isn't just what you see in your eyes that goes to your retina, to your optic nerve and so on. But it doesn't really matter for these purposes. The main issue is that your, uh, your circadian rhythm is synchronized uh, by, by, by seeing somehow, by sensing light. Um, now, the question is which light is more important? Um, I, I think, I, I don't know how good the evidence is for this, but it is claimed that blue light is more significant in, uh, that, that it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, you could imagine in, in our ancient ancestors that, um, you know, light that's blue was only available from the sun, from something as hot as the sun. The surface of the sun, like is about 6,000 degrees, same as the surface of a tungsten filament in an in a, in a incandescent bulb, that produces light that is, looks to us white, that contains a whole lot of blue, uh, bluish light as well as some red light. And, and the combination of those things appears to us white. If we have your average fire that uh, you know, our ancient ancestors might have, uh, might have had going at night, uh, the, the, the light, it's, it's probably much colder than an incandescent filament or than the surface of the sun. Um, and so that light tends to be much more reddish and so you would expect that, uh, you know, if we, if we had evolved somehow, I don't know whether that evolution would have really worked, um, but if we'd evolved somehow, it's like blue light, you know, it's the sun, nothing but the sun. And so it must be daytime. Reddish light, well, that might be a fire going. So it could be nighttime. So that will be an explanation. I don't know whether it's correct, but that's a possible explanation for why we would tend to synchronize to, um, uh, to, to blue light um, and we would tend to be sort of kept awake um, and, and, and move our circadian rhythm based on blue light more so than red light. Let's see, there's a question here from Paul. What advice would you give to learn real analysis? So real analysis is a, a fancy version of things like calculus, piece of mathematics. I would say my, my main meta statement about these things is, you know, use Wolfram language, use Mathematica, do experiments when you think you've learned something about how uh, uh, you know the slopes of functions, the way maxima and minima of functions work, the um, uh, the way that limits work, the way that um, uh, non-uniformity of limits works with two different parameters, things like that. Just try a bunch of experiments. Just try actually making pictures. Uh, try doing computations with actual functions. Um, that's, for me at least, that's the way that I really understand these concepts. And, and like, for example, in this very big case of the physics project that we've been working on, um, that, which ends up being a lot of very abstract mathematics. In fact, it requires a vast generalization of the ideas of real analysis, a generalization that, that sort of has not happened yet in mathematics that we still have to do, generalization to fractional dimensional space of the concepts of calculus and so on to get an idea about how that works. It's all doing computer experiments, seeing examples of what happens. That's what gives us the clue that we might need this generalization of real analysis and so on. But in learning real analysis, I think the key thing is do computer experiments, visualize what's going on, uh, try and try out different kinds of things. That's the way you really get a good understanding of what's happening. It's a question from Sarah here. What happens when you cry in space? Well, gosh, I mean, so the two different things by what you might mean in space. So 
you know, space is more or less a vacuum. There's no molecules of air or anything like that. Um, if you're in space without a spacesuit, you're in very bad shape because we need the pressure of, of air, um, pressure of the atmosphere to, to, uh, to keep us, I mean, we're, we're used to existing in, uh, um, in air of a certain pressure. So it's not, um, uh, if, if we didn't have a spacesuit on, We'd be in we'd be in very very terrible shape because we we kind of um, we, we, there's pressure that we generate from inside us that sort of pushes us outwards and if that's usually uh, uh, that's usually equal to the pressure that comes from the atmosphere around us pressing in on us so kind of an analogous thing if you're a fish living deep in the ocean like if you're a fish that lives a mile under the ocean there's a huge pressure that's produced by that mile of water on top of you. It's a huge pressure pushing, pushing you in. Well, a fish like that will have been set up so that it has a pressure pushing outwards from inside the fish that, um, uh, that keeps it in, 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 uh, in equilibrium, that keeps it, it, there's pressure from the water pushing in, there's pressure from the insides of the fish pushing out. Uh, if you take that fish up to the surface where the pressure, where the outward pressure is much smaller, the fish will kind of puff up. It's really bad for the fish. Um, fish probably wouldn't survive being pulled up from a mile under the ocean to the surface of that, definitely wouldn't. And that's that's what would happen to, to us if we were in space without a spacesuit with air inside it that's, that's uh, making a sort of artificial atmosphere that has pressure in it. So that's a, the first thing. So... Uh, one of the things that, um, uh, so, so let's assume that you're in space, but you're in a space station where there, or in a spacesuit where there is um, uh, artificial atmosphere and there's enough pressure to keep you, um, uh, to keep you uh, sort of uh, in the right shape, so to speak. Um, then the, the other feature of being in space, like in orbit around the earth, is that you're weightless. Um, instead of uh, uh, on the earth, you drop something, it falls under gravity towards the center of the Earth. But when you're in orbit, everything is sort of falling around the Earth and everything's falling at the same rate. So you will, you will, uh, everything seems weightless. If you, if you, if you, uh, you know, if you, uh, like, um, if you sneeze, instead of the droplets of water uh, kind of dropping to the ground with gravity as, as they will, um, or, or if you throw a ball, instead of it dropping to the ground with gravity, if you throw a ball when you're weightless in, in, in orbit around the Earth, for example, then uh, the ball will just, will just keep going in a straight line. It won't fall down. So, so if you were to, uh, for example, if, if you generated like tears in space, they wouldn't, um, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, typically, you know, if you get uh, tears in your eyes, they tend to go down tear ducts towards your, um, uh, that, that drain through, you know, through the, through towards your nose and that um, all the, the fluid drains out. I suspect that that wouldn't work in space. I don't know how that works. I don't know. Um, I would guess that that doesn't work. And actually that's a good question for, for an ast to ask an astronaut is how that works out. Because I, I think that the drainage of tears from eyes depends on gravity to drain them through tear ducts. 
So I don't know. Um, and uh, uh, it's a good question. Um, but so that's that's the um, uh, now if if you mean like uh, you know cry out make a sound if you're in if you're inside a space station and there's air there then sound will sound is when 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 you talk what's happening is that your vocal tract is vibrating that's causing uh, causing air to be compressed and expanded compressed and expanded very quickly maybe uh, a thousand times a second um, or something and um, uh, but in order, and that's what corresponds to the sound. But if you don't have any air, there is no sound, um, and you can't. You can't. There's nothing to. Uh, there's nothing in which the sound can exist. The sound consists of. You know. You can even feel if you. If you know, push your hand in front of your mouth when you're talking. You can even feel a little bit the 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 change in pressure where you can't. You can't feel the the the. Um, the uh, it's too fast for you to actually feel, but you can feel that there's some something going on that that some kind of uh, 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 that that some uh, uh, progressive pressure of 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 of, um, of air, but that's just not present if you're in the vacuum of space, so you you can't get sounds. Let's see. Uh, Slayer is asking, who is the most underrated scientist? Um, who comes to mind when you think of a historical scientist who was unfairly snubbed? Um, and you're asking about Rosalind Franklin um, and the discovery of the double helix. You know, it's really a complicated story because here's what often happens. Somebody will come up with an idea. They'll describe it. Probably they understand the idea in some sense of understanding their idea, but nobody else understands it. And so then the question is, did they really understand the idea or not? And often it's really, really hard to tell. And, and often there are things that get discovered, but people just don't know the significance of them. And so then did the person who noticed that phenomenon, is that significant? Or is the real significance only when the phenomenon was, when the, when the importance of the phenomenon was understood? So for example, uh, gosh, what's a good example of this? There's so many. I mean, there's so many both in, um, in experimental science and in theoretical science where people noticed things, but nobody really understood the, nobody understood the significance and people didn't understand the, um, uh, um, people didn't understand kind of the, um, uh, people didn't know whether the people who'd originated it even understood the significance. Let me tell you some stories from my own life. So I'm not, not picking on other people. So back in 1979, when I was a teenager still, um, I worked on questions about the early universe. And one of the things I figured out along with a, a friend of mine named Rocky Kolb was, um, uh, who has subsequently become a, a very well-known cosmologist, um, but uh, anyway, so, so Rocky and I were studying the very early universe, the first one second of the existence of the universe. And um, uh, one of the questions about the early universe is, uh, how, did, um, how did the early universe manage to get mixed up enough that different parts of it are roughly the same? Because usually you expect that different... Um, uh, well, it's a little bit complicated, but but usually it it takes uh, kind of 
uh, information to, to travel from one side of a system to another for it to kind of um, un become uniform. And there wasn't time for that in one second after the beginning of the universe. So it's sort of a mystery about how that worked. And so what we figured out is that there is a particular, okay, so, so roughly what, what happens in the, in, in, okay, so if you have a, a material like water and you cool it down enough, it'll eventually turn into ice. It'll make a solid. Um, that process of going from water to solid, from liquid to solid, solid to liquid, that's called the phase transition. And, and often there are many materials where when you, uh, if you heat them up, they will show these phase transitions, for example, from solid to liquid to gas, whatever else. Okay, so the thing that the universe is made of, or according to current theories of particle physics, the universe, and it's a slightly complicated thing, it's not an ordinary material made of atoms and so on, but the universe has a thing called Higgs field, um, which uh, it contains. And one of the things that should happen in the very early universe is that in a sense, the Higgs field should go from being kind of like a gas to being kind of like a solid. It should go from there being a very low density of Higgs field, like, a, like, like steam, to being a high density of Higgs field like ice. Um, and that phenomenon should have happened, uh, I think about a microsecond after the beginning of the universe, maybe a little less than that. Um, depends on the type of Higgs field and a bunch of other details. But in any case, the, um, so, so this phase transition should have happened in the early universe, maybe a microsecond after the very beginning of the universe. Okay, so Rocky and I figured that out and figured out that one of the things that happens when um, uh, the characteristics of a solid and a gas are very different. And the universe, the universe expands and the rate at which the universe should expand would have been very different if the thing had been behaving, if the Higgs field in the universe had been behaving like a gas versus behaving like a solid. So we figured out there should be this big, big difference in expansion rate of the universe as a result of that. And more than that, we figured out that, well, the expansion rate, if, if, if this transition occurred, should be, uh, it should have very, the universe should have very rapid expansion, at least for a brief period. Um, and, and we also figured out that if the universe had that kind of rapid expansion, um, then this problem about how different parts of the universe should communicate with each other will be solved. Okay, the problem was that we didn't, we didn't really believe that that would have happened in the universe because we, in order for that to have been a significant effect, it would have had to, uh, okay, so, so another thing I should explain. If you have uh, water and um, you cool it below zero degrees centigrade, um, you would expect the water is gonna freeze into ice. But it turns out that if you're very, very, very careful and you don't allow, and you just have this water and you cool it very, very, very carefully and there are no, uh, uh, there, there are no imperfections in the water. There are no little pieces of, of dust or anything else, nothing, nothing that sort of makes the water not completely uniform. You can super cool it so that it is below zero degrees centigrade but has not yet started forming ice crystals, hasn't yet started forming solid. If, if you drop a little, if you drop even the slightest thing in there, immediately below zero degrees centigrade, it will start, that will be a nucleation site and it will start producing ice and you'll get this, the whole water will turn into ice. Okay, but so 
in order for this effect to have been important in the early universe, the early universe would have had to have supercooled by a factor of 10 billion. It would have, the temperature would have had to go, uh, uh, it would have had to not nucleate this kind of um, solid Higgs field solid type thing for 10 billion, uh, when the temperature reduced by a factor of 10 billion relative to where you would expect that transition to occur. And I said, that's just not plausible. The universe, it won't be the case that the universe will have the characteristics necessary for that kind of supercooling. So we wrote this academic paper, we put a little footnote saying, well, if this supercooling could happen, then that will be very important for the, for the history of the universe, but it didn't seem plausible that supercooling would happen. Okay, so other people came along and they said, gosh, this supercooling idea is really interesting and we could explain all this stuff about the universe if only it's supercooled by that factor. And so they said, let's just assume the universe for some reason that we don't yet know, supercooled by that factor, then we get to build a whole new version of cosmology, it's called inflationary cosmology, on the basis of that assumption. Well, so the question is then, you know, who, who really figured that out? You know, Rocky and I figured out this fact that you could get the supercooling, it would affect the expansion rate of the universe, what the consequences of that would be, but we didn't really take that seriously enough to say this is really a good model for, for the evolution of the universe. And, and really nothing, you know, it, did, it didn't take something different. It, the physics wasn't any different. It was just a difference of emphasis and a difference of context. And, and I would say that in that case, you know, lots of, uh, lots of physics and lots of careers were built on the basis of this idea of inflationary cosmology. And um, it's, you know, I think Rocky in my footnote is really just a footnote. It's, um, it's something where we didn't really uh, understand or, or really choose to push the significance of this. Whether inflationary cosmology is correct is a different matter. With our new theory of physics, there's a, a different approach that I think is actually much more promising. And probably, and maybe we were even correct that this idea of supercooling just wouldn't happen the way that inflationary cosmology says it happens. And in order to get that supercooling, you have to have all kinds of kludges to make that work. So that's an example where it's a little bit of a subtle issue you know, who, who is underrated, who is not. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that kind of thing happens over and over again in science. I mean, like right now with our new theory of physics, there's a question of, you know, how close did other people get to different pieces of this theory? And honestly, it's really hard to figure out, really hard to figure out. I mean, there's, uh, there's a person who, um, who died a few years ago uh, named David Finkelstein, who wrote a book, I talked to him a bunch of times. I, I never understood very well what he was talking about, but he wrote a book, some words in which seem to be kind of pointed in the direction of the kind of physics we've done, but I don't know whether that's what he meant. Um, and from talking to him and asking him questions, I don't know whether that's what he meant. Um, so it's, it's really hard to tell in many cases what, um, uh, you know, and, and, and sometimes there are, there are things where, uh, you know, some piece of science is very, uh, kind of everybody hears about, oh, there's this piece of science and it's, it's so important and it, it turns out not to be that important. That can happen. And there are these pieces of science where people don't hear about it and it's, um, uh, and it really is important, but people didn't really understand the significance. Now, you know, I've done a lot of science in my life and I think um, I, I kind of have my own assessment 
of what's important and what's not. And, and it's kind of sometimes frustrating because the things that people think are important are things where I think they're things that I've done that were not terribly important. Um, and yet other things that I think were really important, um, uh, people are like, we don't really understand this and they don't really pay much attention to it. Now, it's sort of been interesting to me that I've been able to kind of test my ability to figure out what's important and what's not, because I've been around long enough that I can kind of see what's happened. And, you know, I've, I've, I think I've been doing really well at figuring out what's important and what's not. What I'm not doing so well at is figuring out how long it's going to take for people to understand this or that idea. Um, I mean, I think it's been, it's been really good with our new theory of physics. Um, you know, a lot of those ideas I first developed more than 30 years ago now. Um, and uh, the, um, and, and 20 years ago, I explained them to a lot of people, millions of people actually, and, and really people didn't understand. And it's taken making uh, a bigger sort of tower of progress to get to the point where there's things that people can understand. Uh, but, but, you know, there are, there are other things that happen in, um, you know, I, I've been interested in history of science and um, there are, you know, when you look at a big discovery, um, there's, um, uh, um, there's often a lot of steps that get taken along the way. And sometimes the people who you hear about as being involved in those steps were really the important ones and sometimes they were not. Um, in the case of the discovery of the double helix of DNA, I don't know that story in enough detail. I, I, I certainly um, uh, know Jim Watson and I knew Francis Crick. Um, and uh, so the, you know, I can have opinions based on those individuals. Um, uh, I, I don't really know the detailed story of Rosalind Franklin and um, the X-ray crystallography that was done on, um, on discovering DNA. I mean, for people's interest, let me just say a little bit about, about that process. Um, so DNA, it's the molecule that stores the genetic information in our cells. Uh, the actual molecule was known to exist in the nuclei of cells for a long time, but nobody really knew how it worked. And nobody knew that it had this idea of storing information digitally by using these repeating blocks of identical collections of atoms and so on. Um, and so a big issue, and, and certainly nobody knew, how DNA could replicate, could make copies of itself, which is what needs to happen when, when, when our cells uh, replicate. Um, and so back in 1953, and just before 1953, the, um, the thing that um, was a big question was, what was the structure of DNA? What was, what was it as a, uh, as a, what shape was the molecule? And um, so how do you figure out the shape of a molecule? Well, there's a kind of a clever technique. So if you have a crystal, a crystal is a, is, a, is a solid in which there are atoms and the atoms are all lined up in a definite pattern. So the sort of defining characteristic of a crystal is that it's a repeating, there's sequences of atoms that, are, that repeat, 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 repeat all the time. So for example, a salt crystal, you'll have sodium chloride, this little pair of, 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 of atoms there. You just get repeating, 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 and it's in a cubic grid in the case of a, of a salt crystal. Um, and uh, that, that's a very simple case. Now, in the case of DNA, what was found was it was possible to make crystals um, in which uh, there were, that DNA was arranged in a crystal and repeating um, in, in a lot of repeats of this, of this uh, uh, collection of atoms, this molecule that represented DNA. And the question was, 
what was the arrangement of atoms um, in this repeating crystal? So how do you figure out the arrangement of atoms in a crystal? Well, there's a clever technique that's called X-ray crystallography. Um, and it was invented in the 1910s and 1920s, I think. Um, maybe as late as 1930s, I'm not sure. Okay, here's how it works. Let's see if I can explain this. Operationally, what happens is you, you uh, shine X-rays onto a crystal and uh, the X-rays are only, okay, well, if you shine light onto a mirror, um, it doesn't matter whether you're shining red light or blue light, the light is always reflected by the mirror and the, the rule for reflection of light is the angle of incidence, the angle at which the light hits the mirror will be equal to the angle of reflection. So the light will come in at, at let's say a 30 degree angle, will bounce out at a 30 degree angle, okay? And it does that for all frequencies of light, red light, blue light, green light, whatever, it doesn't matter. Always the angle of incidence is equal to the angle of reflection. Okay, so um, in the case of X-rays, if you shine X-rays, a beam of X-rays on a crystal, it turns out that's no longer true, that the, the X-rays would be reflected from the crystal, but they are not reflected. Uh, it isn't the case that the, the X-rays are reflected at any angle. So, okay, let, let's assume that we've got just red light, for example. For a mirror, we can shine the red light at a 50 degree angle, a 52 degree angle, a 53 degree angle. For every angle we shine it at, the reflected light will always be reflected at that same angle. Not true for X-rays on a crystal. For X-rays on a crystal, only certain discrete angles uh, of reflection are allowed. Uh, other angles, the X-ray will just be absorbed. Um, only it's so it's only if you if you sh if if the x-ray is at a particular angle then it will get reflected out the reason for that is a phenomenon called diffraction which i could explain but it's a little bit subtle and it all has to do with the fact that the wavelength of the x-rays is comparable to the distance between well is, is is actually is smaller than the distance between the atom and the crystal let's not explain how diffraction works but let's just say that uh with x-rays that only certain angles are allowed to be reflected. And which angles are allowed to be reflected is a, uh, is a consequence of the arrangement of atoms in the crystal. But that arrangement is a quite a complicated mathematical relationship. It's actually what's called the Fourier transform of the, um, of the configuration of atoms basically gives you the diffraction pattern that corresponds to the angles at which the X-rays can be, can be reflected. So anyway, what was known for, for DNA was that the X-ray diffraction pattern had a particular form, it had a bunch of dots that corresponded to the different angles at which X-rays could be reflected from the DNA crystal. Okay, so the question was, what shape of DNA crystal would be the, uh, the right one to reproduce the pattern of dots that was seen in the diffraction pattern? Now, there, it turns out a given pattern of dots, there can be many different shapes that would in principle be consistent, but most of those shapes are not things that you could make with atoms, not things that would correspond to ordinary molecules and so on. And what um, uh, Francis Crick and Jim Watson figured out um, was that uh, one of the, a shape that would be consistent with that is the shape that uh, is this double helix shape that is the famous shape of DNA. And I, I think, 
I might be getting this history wrong, but I think the history was that Rosalind Franklin had made the X-ray diffraction patterns, which were what were needed to be able to figure out what shape it was. And then the mystery was, well, what shape would it be? And I don't know whether, I think she didn't figure out what shape it was, whether she tried, I don't know. Um, and I think that the achievement of, of, of Watson and Crick was to figure out what shape it was and to figure out sort of the significance of that shape and the fact that with that shape, you could explain kind of genetic information in terms of, uh, of digital data and, uh, and with this uh, replication thing. In fact, I think in their paper, they mostly concentrated, oh, it's a double helix. And I think there was a guy called George Gamow who was a physicist, I think who had suggested the idea that there might be sort of digital information that was used to encode genetics. But that's kind of how those things came together. So, so the, you know, it, the, the sort of the cool picture of DNA as a double helix uh, was one sort of thing. The raw material, the raw data necessary to figure out even approximately what DNA its shape was came from a different place, I think, from Rosalind Franklin. Gosh, a lot, lot of different questions here. Well, there's a question from Mark here. Um, how does one see colors when actual color, when, when, how do we see colors? What, what does it mean? What, what, when do we say it's pink, it's uh, purple? How do we tell that? Okay, that's actually reasonably easy to explain. The, he says, that's always, I should never say that because that's always a setup for realizing that, it, that it's hopelessly difficult. Um, what, okay, so light consists of electromagnetic waves, which are uh, kind of little tiny amounts of electricity and magnetism. And uh, because of the way the physics of those things works, you can have little electric fields, little magnetic fields, and they travel at the speed of light. And that's what, and, and, and they, they travel in such a, they, they go so that the amount of electric field and the amount of magnetic field is varying actually a trillion times a second in the case of light, roughly. Uh, and um, and as, as, a, a, as light propagates, like the light that's going from, you know, from my face to the camera here, it's moving through, through space. And, and there's a little tiny amount of electric field, tiny amount of magnetic field, varying a trillion times a second. And that lump of electricity and magnetism is traveling at the speed of light. Okay, so the exact rate at which the electric and magnetic fields vary is what determines the color of the light. With red light, it varies slightly slower than with blue light by a tiny factor, actually. And so that's the physical difference between red light and blue light is just how quickly those electromagnetic fields are varying. Okay, how do we perceive these things? Well, light hits our eyes, goes to the retina, which is the uh, collection of nerve cells at the back of our eyes. And in those nerve cells, there are these things called cone cells, which are a particular type of nerve cell. Uh, we, we humans normally, if, if we're not, if we don't have colorblindness, um, we, we have three kinds of cone cells. Um, and those three kinds of cone cells are they're, they're, they're nerve cells, uh, but they're special nerve cells. They're nerve cells where when a photon of light, when, a, when some light hits one of those nerve cells, it causes an electrical signal to be produced in the nerve cell. 
and that electrical signal is transmitted down our optic nerve to our brain. And um, the, uh, uh, so the way it works is we have three kinds of cone cells and we have a kind of cone cell, kind of red cone cells, which are most sensitive to light that has a frequency right around uh, the frequency of red light. And we have green uh, cone cells roughly, it doesn't quite work this way, it's a little bit subtle, but, but um, roughly we have green cone cells where we have, um, uh, where we're sensitive uh, to green light and blue cone cells, where, which are sensitive to blue light. And so what's happening is when we see purple, what's happening is that our, our red, that, that piece of light is, uh, has, um, uh, has um, enough, uh, enough uh, that's in the, enough sort of uh, variation that corresponds to the frequency of red light and enough that corresponds to the frequency of blue light that electrical signals are produced both in our red cones and in our blue cones. And those electrical uh, signals go to our brain. And we've learnt, because we kind of know, uh, we've learnt that when these electrical signals are, when our brain uh, has those electrical signals, that that's associated with, a, with, a, uh, with purple, for example. Okay, so, so that's, that's basically how it works. And, and what happens is, the, the signal from our retina goes to our primary visual cortex, which is in the back of our head. Um, and uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, we, we learn what different colors correspond to. Now, again, there is a, all kinds of subtlety in this. So what's actually transmitted in the optic nerve and, and the actual um, is, is actually differences, red to green, uh, uh, is it blue to red? I'm not sure, um, but we actually, we're actually sensitive to the differences between those colors. And, and you can actually test that. There's a, there's a fun experiment. If you have a, a, a black and white disc and um, you spin it at a certain rate, um, you will, that black and white disc, even though it's just black and white, um, will look like it has, it has uh, rings of color on it. And the reason that you see rings of color are because um, your, the black and white light uh, you know, the, the uh, white is just all, all, all frequencies of light. So it's sort of all colors. Black is, is no color, no, no light. So you're, you're getting sort of bursts of light of all colors coming on your retina, but it's happening, let's say, I don't know, many times a second because this disc is spinning around. Um, and what you're seeing is light, no light, light, no light. Okay. So it turns out that the time it takes your, and I I'm, I'm, don't remember which one it is, but, but let's say your red cone cells to, uh, uh, to kind of be ready to receive the next signal is a bit longer than the one for your blue cone cells. And that's why instead of you just seeing uniform gray, you see, because you keep on seeing your, your red cone cells haven't, um, haven't, aren't ready to see a different color, you, that, that's why you get the sort of mismatch between the amount of, of sort of red and blue you see. And it's because of this difference, because the optic nerve only senses this difference that you see these circles of color in what you would otherwise think is just a, a, um, a, a black and white disc rotating. Um, uh, Planumbra asks, uh, radio waves from the planets when transformed into the audio spectrum sound very strange. Why do they sound so spooky? Well, I should I should get uh, I should pull up. Uh, first question is which which planets have lots of radio waves? 
uh, Jupiter is the one with the most intense radio waves. Uh, the sun also produces radio waves. Um, the planets that produce radio waves are planets with magnetic fields. So the Earth, um, okay, the Earth is an example of a planet with a magnetic field. And the Earth's magnetic field um, is what allows you to use a compass. Um, the compass aligns itself with the magnetic, uh, the magnetic field. And the, you know, a, a bar magnet has a north pole and a south pole. The Earth is a giant bar magnet and its north pole is somewhere in northern Canada these days, um, moves around a bit. Um, and that corresponds to that's the, 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 the Earth is, is, has a magnetic field that's like the magnetic field of a giant bar magnet with the North Pole of the magnet roughly aligned with the North Pole of the Earth. So how does the Earth manage to have a magnetic field? It's because of um, electric currents that exist in the molten core of the Earth. And it's kind of, there are, there's convection cells that come because of heating and cooling in the mantle of the Earth. And, and people don't know exactly how this works, but roughly it's through the sort of motion of, of uh, the, this, these electric currents are through the motion of, of charged material in the, in the liquid core of the earth. Um, and that produces this magnetic field that we then detect um, on the surface of the earth. The reason that's relevant to radio waves is uh, in space, there's a thing called the solar wind, which is a kind of a, a bunch of particles, mostly electrons and protons that are streaming outwards from the sun. In addition to producing light, the sun also produces the solar wind, the stream of particles that come outwards from the sun. When that stream of particles uh, uh, gets to the position of the earth, um, a, a charged particle like an electron uh, will be uh, diverted. It will, instead of going in a straight line, it will, be, it will, be, um, it will move um, as a result of the presence of the magnetic field. And in, in moving in that way, it produces radio waves. And again, if I had a bit more time, I'd probably explain in more detail how that works. Um, but roughly there are electrons, um, the, uh, um, well, it's, it's, it's a little complicated, but, but, but basically when the electrons are deflected by the Earth's magnetic field, they produce radio waves. And so that's how radio waves are produced uh, by um, in, um, uh, 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 so the ionosphere of the Earth um, has uh, radio waves that it produces um, that you can, um, you can uh, hear with a radio receiver and they make kind of weird noises. Um, those noises are in a certain range of frequencies. And again, uh, well, uh, the reason you're hearing those kinds of sounds is because there will be, if, if the ionosphere was kind of um, fixed in structure, there would just be roughly a single frequency, but it's because of progressive changes that you hear those changing, slowly changing frequencies that sound like kind of spooky noises. Now, okay, Jupiter. Okay, so, so the moon does not have a magnetic field. Why? Well, that's pretty good that there's no molten core in the moon. The moon is actually too small presumably to have a molten core. The molten core of the Earth is a result of the fact that it still hasn't cooled down since when the Earth was formed, and it's also a result of radioactive decay in the, in the center of the Earth. But anyway, the moon has 
the moon is small enough that it's kind of cooled down to be all solid. There might be a few little lumps of liquid still left, but it's probably mostly solid. Uh, Mars, for example, has a, has a small uh, liquid core, I think, and has, a, I think, a tiny magnetic field. Jupiter has a big magnetic field, and Jupiter is a much weirder setup because Jupiter is mostly gas. I mean, the, the, uh, it's like, like um, it's kind of like a, in animals, it's kind of like an owl where there's a small little bird inside and there's a big fluffy thing of feathers outside. But Jupiter's atmosphere is very, very thick. Um, and uh, the actual core of Jupiter, which is very weird, it has, it's under very high pressure. It's probably solid hydrogen. Um, and uh, it's, it's very, Jupiter is a very strange, strange thing. If Jupiter was, was not that much bigger than it is, it would have enough pressure inside it that it would actually uh, undergo nuclear fusion and it would actually turn into a star rather than a planet. But Jupiter, um, uh, Jupiter as it is, has a, just a lot of pressure in the center. Um, and I'm not sure it is completely known why Jupiter has a large magnetic field, but I'm guessing that the reason is that there are essentially uh, streams of gas um, and liquid that are circulating inside the, the very thick atmosphere of Jupiter and producing that magnetic field. But I don't, I don't know that for sure. Um, but that magnetic field, when it interacts with the solar wind, um, is what is producing the, um, uh, the, the, the radio waves that you um, hear from Jupiter. I, at least I believe that's correct. All right, I think we should wrap it up here. Oh yeah, there's a comment here. Face masks will be even more necessary in space. Yeah, that's a good question. On the, on the International Space Station, uh, you know, what, one of the big issues with, um, uh, one of the big uses of face masks is if you don't have a face mask, when you uh, breathe out, you are pushing the air out at a certain speed and it will go many, uh, uh, it will go many feet the droplets that you, uh, that you push out, which if you're sick will contain virus, will go out many feet before falling to the ground. Now, actually the problem is that when the virus is in, is when it kind of dries out and you don't anymore have a droplet of water around it. Um, and even when you have, usually we, we produce sort of two sizes of droplets of water usually when we breathe out. And uh, either when the thing is dried out and doesn't have a droplet around it, or when it has one of the small droplets, those small droplets are so small that little tiny currents of, in the air can keep it aloft for a long time, like hours. Um, and so, you know, if you don't have a, a ventilated room where there's wind going through it and so on, um, then there can be droplets that are just hanging out in the air for a really long time. And if you then, if somebody else then goes in there, they can breathe in those droplets. Now, I think what, what's, what uh, in, the, in, uh, in space, um, even the larger droplets, which would normally fall to the ground and that you sort of uh, lose with, with sort of physical social distancing, um, those, those will not fall to the ground in the ISS. So, so I guess um, let's just hope that none of the astronauts who go to the ISS, that they've all been well tested um, and none of them are carrying uh, uh, COVID-19 because uh, those viruses, yes, it's quite completely true. Social distancing won't work there because the the uh, the droplets will not fall to the ground. Um, all right, uh, we better wrap up here. Well, nice to chat with you again today, and look forward to doing it again, uh, hopefully next week. Hope you've enjoyed this uh, uh, this Q and A. Thanks a lot, and uh, goodbye for now.
You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.